Good morning, Grace Gospel Church. I don't know, I was moved to tears by that song that they sang, uh, Me on Your Mind. And the verse of Scripture that came to mind as I pondered and attempted to sing with tears those lyrics was Galatians 2.20. Paul writes this, and what is true of Paul in this verse is true of every single one of us here this morning who have cried out to Jesus Christ for salvation and everyone who will cry out to them, to him, before their life is over. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Not just for the world, though that's true. Not just for the church, that's true as well, but for you. He loved you and gave himself up for you. If you have or will cry out to him for salvation. We have the ministry... uh, Expo after service today. I was so impressed when I was here yesterday and I walked by the tables looking at all the ministries. And there are needs in these ministries to be filled. Don't walk by and think, oh, I could never do that. Speak to the ministry lead or the ministry representative. Talk to them. Find out what specifically you would need to do. Confess to them your reservations or what you feel your personal shortcomings are. Let them respond to that. They know the ministry better than you do, better than I do. You might just be a good fit. If you're not sure, try it. If the Lord blesses your effort, then clearly he's gifted you in a way to serve in that particular capacity. If it does not produce the fruit that everyone involved was hoping for, not a problem. You tried. Move on to another ministry in the future. And oh, by the way, I hope you'll all stay, not just for the ministry, but for the pizza afterwards. There's going to be pizza being served as an incentive. I mean, it's, it's dinner time. You all want to uh, need something in the belly, so we're providing that as well. Once again today, we have a warning passage. This is a long warning passage. Gladly, our brother David shared that burden last week by beginning the warning passage. We're in the heart of it today. If the Lord Jesus Christ were here this morning, I believe two things at least would be true. The first, it would be a far better message than what I could give. It's a no-brainer, right? It's the Lord preaching. Secondly, he would say, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. He would say that when something he taught 
was very difficult to receive and accept. Not difficult intellectually to understand, but difficult to wrap one's heart around the truth of the teaching. And this will become clearer as we look at the specific words in this warning. These warning passages are particularly appropriate for all of us here today, everyone who hears this message. You see, over the last 60-plus years of American evangelical Christianity, there has arose a belief, and probably everyone in this church, including myself, I trusted Christ over 48 years ago, and it was true in my case, it's probably true in the case of virtually everyone here, and everyone you have known who has fellowshiped here. It is termed by scholars and theologians, easy believism. We have all been influenced by it. We have had the gospel preached to us by easy believism. We often hear, well, if you just say this prayer, you're saved. That's easy believism. You can't find a single verse of Scripture that teaches that. Oh, if you walk the aisle, you're saved. You can't find a single verse of Scripture that teaches that. If you come forward at some event, whether it be a play about heaven and hell, and speak to someone, a counselor, and you came forth, you're saved. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. You're not going to find a single verse of Scripture that teaches that. What Scripture teaches is belief in the heart, not just in the mind. The mind is the place of agreement. The heart is the place of commitment. If you believe in your heart, you will be saved according to the teaching of Scripture. It's a commitment. It's a devotion. <clears throat> and as we'll see from the warning in this passage, it is lifelong. This is why we need to have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit says through the written words of Scripture. It's going to be so clear. There's not going to be an intellectual objection to the words that we're going to see this morning that our brother Joe read to us. It's not going to be an intellectual objection. It's not going to be a scriptural objection because you already know I rarely depart from the precise wording of Scripture and get into speculation in what I say. What some of you are going to have, and I know this from the last warning passage because I did get some feedback, it's going to be an emotional objection. Why? Because we all know someone, a friend, a child, a parent, a spouse, a Christian neighbor, a Christian friend. We all know somebody who this passage is describing. 
And very likely, that person is a loved one. Someone that you love with all your heart and would never want to see that individual lost for all eternity, a Christless eternity separated from God and Christ. And because we love them so much and we can't bear to think of that eternity for them, there's going to be an emotional response in many people this morning, an emotional objection. But an emotional objection doesn't make it true. A scriptural objection might, if the objection correctly understands and interprets and applies scripture, but not an emotional one. An intellectual one may Objection may be correct, but only if it doesn't go against the mind or intellect of God. So this morning, we need to have ears to hear because this is going to go against easy believism. This is the gospel found in Scripture that we're going to hear this morning. You'll see that I'm going to follow the words of the text of Scripture to the letter as I explain the Scriptures to you. Most of it's going to be so clear, you're not going to need explanation. For some, it'll be as if the scales fell off your eyes and you see the truth for the first time. These warning passages are appropriate because they were written to an ancient audience very much like some of those we know and love and that we're concerned about. It was written to an early audience of Jews who turned from Judaism and its dead works and its sacrifices, its repeated sacrifices, none of which could ever save as we'll see in Hebrews chapters 7, 8, and 10. And they turned from Judaism to believe in Moshiach Yeshua, Messiah Jesus. And they embraced him and they became Christians, Christ followers. And they professed salvation in Jesus Christ. They professed Christ as their Savior. That's what we've done here. And so we're in the exact same position as them. Yes, they also had, as our brother David made clear in the opening message on Hebrews, they were experiencing persecution. According to Hebrews chapter 10, some of them were persecuted so badly that their land and homes was taken from them, and they accepted the persecution joyfully. But now, as the persecution continues, or now maybe even threatens the life, their own life or the life of their loved ones, they're tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to Judaism. Turn from the new covenant in Christ's blood to the old covenant in bloody sacrifices of animals. We're that same audience of professing believers in Christ. So these warning passages 
are very, very appropriate for us. These warning passages are for many the hardest passages in the New Testament or among the hardest passages to interpret correctly and understand. And as I mentioned the first, in the first warning passage, I'm going to mention again, I believe this is for two main reasons. First, what is in our mind when we read the warning passage, and second, what is not in our mind when we read the, morning pas- uh, the warning passages. So what is in our mind? We go to these passages thinking they are primarily addressing the question of whether or not you can lose your salvation. And those who believe you can lose your salvation, which I want to make very clear, I do not. Not because of these passages, but because of other key passages like Romans 8, verses 28 through 39, like uh, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. They see from these passages you can lose your salvation because that is already what's in their mind. That's their preconceived theology. On the other side of the coin, we should not go to these passages with our preconceived theology that we cannot lose our salvation. That if we read or said a prayer from a tract or with someone who explained the gospel to us, we're saved and will always be saved. It's true that if you're saved, you're always saved. But the question is, are you saved in the first place? And these passages address that. These passages are warning passages to hold fast to Christ. Don't turn your back on Christ and walk back to the world. These passages are not about people who might leave Grace Gospel Church to go to another church. They are passages about those who leave Christ to go to something else that is not Christ. These passages are warnings that all of us should take to heart. If not for the grace of God, we would do what these professing Christians, these Jewish Christians, in the letter to the Hebrews, were doing. There are five warning passages in Hebrews. We're in the second one. David began it. We're going to look at verses 12 through 19 of chapter 3. The heart, the center of the warning. Let's just get an overview of this warning. Look what is being stressed here. Whose house we are if we hold fast firm until the end. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast until the end. Do not harden your hearts. Let us fear to have come short of it. It's not like something is mentioned just once in all these verses. It's stressed over and over again. The title of today's message is Take Care, Hold Fast, Don't Fall Away. Christ is revealed in this passage as the one who we need to take care to hold fast to in order to become a partaker 
of His salvation. If, if you take only one thing away from this morning's message, let it be this. God wants you to know that you must take care to hold fast until the end to be a partaker of Christ. This is, comes right from this passage. We're going to look at this passage under two main headings. First, the fact that we can fall away as a professing Christian and the example that the writer gives that we can fall away. So let's look at the fact that we can fall away. We'll spend most of our time in this portion. Take care because it is possible to fall away. Take care, brethren. He gives a command. This is actually a command in the original Greek language that he wrote in. It's a command in English as well. Very literally, it says, see or see to it, brethren. Be on the lookout for this. Be on guard. Take care. Beware. There's no point to give this command if it's not possible. It is possible to fall away. So he gives this command. This command applies to every single person he was writing to. Take care. It applies to you and I today. Take care. It's possible to fall away. If it were not possible, this entire warning, including the part David preached on and the part, Lord willing, that'll be preached next week, makes no sense at all. Remember, he's writing to those who profess salvation. Amongst those who profess salvation, Jesus Christ taught it this way. You have the wheat and the tares. Some are true believers who will not fall away. Others are the weeds, the tares that look like the wheat, and they will fall away. Take care because it is possible to develop unbelief. These Hebrew Christians did. They professed faith, belief in Christ. They said it with their lips. Even for a while, their life showed it. But then they turned away, and some were tempted to turn away because of persecution. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. See, it's possible. He says, take care that th this be not so. The possibility amongst professing believers is that there can be an unbelieving heart. Someone who professes Christ but has never truly believed in Christ. Intellectually, they believe the facts of the gospel. But there is no heart commitment. When I married my wife, she believed I loved her. But the last almost 43 years shows the commitment. The marriage relationship is used to describe the relationship of Christ and the church. 
Christ and the individual believer. It's a picture of commitment, not just intellectual agreement. It's possible to, for a professing believer. I'm very careful to say professing believer. True believers make a profession of faith. False believers also make a profession of faith. It's not up to you and I to decide who is a true believer and who is a mere professor of Christ. This passage is not written so we can judge another. Oh, that person who left, that person who turned there, a false believer. No, it's written for each one of us to take care ourselves. There is going to be interaction in this passage, but it's going to be a different interaction. We'll see that when we get to verse 14. Take care because it's possible to develop unbelief. Take care because unbelief is evil. Unbelief is not just something that can be ignored, that, doesn't, that is of no concern to God. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice, unbelieving and evil are joined together here in describing what should not be true and is not true of any true believer in Christ. Take care because unbelief results in falling away from God. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Evil in the life of the believer, professing believer, unbelief in the heart of the professing believer will end up in them falling away from the living God, doing exactly what some of these professing Hebrew Christians did in turning their back on Christ and walking away and embracing something other than Christ. Here's how this passage causes us as brothers and sisters to work together. It's not in judgment. Oh, I think you're just a professor, a false believer who only professes Christ. Someone who adds Christ to their life. See, Christ is not someone who is added to our life. Christ is someone who is submitted to in our life. He is the Lord. He's not an addition. He's not just the icing on the cake. It's not something we add to make life sweeter. We don't add Christ. We submit to Christ. What is the antidote for the true believer who's tempted because of persecution, tragedy, disappointment, whatever it is, who's tempted to turn away from Christ, the antidote, the remedy, the prescription is to encourage one another. Encourage one another. Take care to encourage one another. This word encourage 
is also used of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. Depending on your translation, he's called the helper or the comforter. This particular Greek word that's translated encourage here can be, depending on the context, sometimes it's better to translate it comfort or help or encourage or exhort. It can be strong, exhort someone, but it could also be tender and gentle and loving to comfort and to help that person. Here, most translations translated encourage. Encourage one another. This is what we should be doing. The local church is often spoken of as a community, and it is. But it's more than that. We are a family. We call each other brother and sister. We love each other. We serve each other. We strengthen each other. We meet the needs of each other. We encourage each other. Take care to encourage frequently but encourage one another day after day. He doesn't say month after month or week after week. He says encourage one another day after day. They found themselves in the middle of spiritual warfare, in the middle of persecution from without. You and I are in spiritual warfare as well, according to the teachings of the New Testament. We need encouragement. I think women understand this much better than men. That's why the phrase is, no man is an island. Now, that could be generic, no human being, no person is an island. But I think it describes men more than it does women. They're much better at relationships. They're much better at encouraging each other. I talked about us being brothers and sisters. How many sisters call each other at least once a week or multiple times a week to share about their life and to encourage one another and relate to one another. But guys, how often do you call your brother, your physical brother that you grew up with in the same house, the same guy you punched in the nose and who punched you? Oh, once a month? Maybe for some once a week, but I'm sure you don't call them as much as most women call their sister. Women get this more than guys, in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said it. And I think you agree with me based on some of the feedback I heard. But encourage one another frequently, day after day. Take care not to put off encouragement, but encourage one another day after day while it is still called today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. If you can encourage someone today... Reach out to a brother or sister in Christ. Give them encouragement. Oh, Paul, I don't know how to encourage them. What would I say to them? Ask them how they're doing. Ask them if you can pray for them. Do you have any needs that I can help meet or share with others who might be better able to meet that need? What can I pray for you about? It's really rather simple. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. Don't put it off. 
begin even today. Take care not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but encourage one another so that. This expresses the purpose for encouragement. These little words, so that, introduce what is known as a purpose clause, the purpose for which something had just been stated. But encourage one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the purpose of encouragement, so that our hearts don't get hardened by not just sin, but the deceitfulness of sin. Sin always gives us the easy way out. The easy way out is almost always sin. And it's deceitful in that way. It's appealing. It appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our laziness. It appeals to our sin nature. But it's deceitful. It's like the juicy, wiggly worm on a hook that a fisherman might use. Or the small bait fish that's still alive and wiggling. It's very attractive, but it hides a hook that when you bite, it hooks you and you're caught. That's the picture there of the deceitfulness of sin. Take care to hold fast to the end. This is the key verse, I would say, in the one thing to take away from this message. It's the key verse of the passage. Take care to hold fast to the end. For this is what he says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we have become partakers of Christ, have become in the past. Throughout this passage, the writer uses a particular form or tense of his verbs. Here, he goes out of his way to use a different form or verb tense. Instead of just talking about past, something that happened in the past, he talks about something that happened in the past, was completed in the past, and the results of that continue on to the present, unchanged and sometimes into the future, depending on the context. For we have become in the past partakers of Christ and continue to be partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is the defining characteristic of the true believer in Christ. You have no assurance of salvation if you do not hold fast firm until the end. That doesn't mean that you may not have a period of sin in your life. But what it does mean is you do not commit apostasy. You do not embrace Christ and then cast him aside, turn your back, and go back to the world. I no longer believe in Christ. I shared the gospel once. Again, easy believism. I was only saved a few weeks. 
and I shared the gospel with someone. Someone I knew, uh, I saw him hitchhiking. I picked him up. I shared the gospel with him. And I did my best sales job. As if the Holy Spirit had no part in the gospel and in true conversion. But what did I know? I was a babe in Christ. And I read those tracts, so I shared the gospel like I read in tracts. And then he prays with me at the end to receive Christ. Well, I see him again six months later, about six months later, and I ask him, uh, you know, how's your Christian walk going? Have you found a church? Are you going to Bible studies? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Have, have you fellowshiped with other Christians? And I remember his exact words to me to this day. I'm not into that anymore. I'm not into that anymore. He did not hold fast the beginning of his assurance firm until the end. In his prayer, he confessed he was a sinner and that he believed in Jesus Christ, but then he turned his back and walked away. I'm not judging him. I'm, not pa I'm using his own words. His own words were, I'm not into that anymore. I don't believe Christ is the only way of salvation anymore. I don't believe in trusting him as my Lord and Savior. I don't believe he's the only way to heaven. That's essentially what he was saying when he said, I'm not into that anymore. Take care to hold fast to the end. We have become partakers if, only if, we hold fast firm until the end. This is where we need to have ears to hear because in the hearts of many, in the minds of many, and it's understandable. If I understand it, God in Christ understands your pain far more. We have a loved one who has turned his or her back on Christ. We have become partakers if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Oh, those who say you can lose your salvation, this is the verse they're going to use, this verse. You see, they lost their salvation. They were no longer a partaker. If you ever have the opportunity and the desire to study logic, informal logic, you learn about conditional logic, statements that have if. A statement and then if and the consequent of that. Here, the statement is, we have become partakers if we hold fast firm until the end. What you can do in logic is you can invert or reverse both sides. Sometimes that makes it clearer. This verse clearly does not teach that you can lose your salvation. For if we invert it, it makes no sense at all. Let's do that. For we have not become partakers of Christ if we do not hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
We are not, we have never been partakers if we do not hold fast. If we've never been partakers, then we can't lose our salvation. We never had it in the first place. We, ha we have not become in the past partakers of Christ if we do not hold firm the beginning of our insurance until the end. This is very clear here. Only those who hold firm the assurance of their salvation until the end have the confidence, have the assurance that they in the past and throughout the present and the future of their lives are truly partakers of Christ. We have only become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. Look, it's not our holding fast in and of ourselves by our own strength, our own great unshakable faith that keeps us firm until the end. It is God who holds us fast. The Scripture, the New Testament teaches we are kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. We are kept by God. God keeps the true believer in Christ. God keeps his true child in the faith firm until the end. Again, it doesn't mean you may not have some days of sin where sin has you up against the ropes and it's just raining blow after blow down on you, and you feel beaten, and you give in to sin. It doesn't mean that. Even when that happens, you know it's sin. You know you need to confess and repent. You don't say, I'm not into this anymore. I just don't believe it anymore. I don't believe Christ is the only way of salvation. That's very different. We are kept by the power of God, not by our own power. No one shall snatch us out of Christ's hand or the Father's hand. There's no way. Like many of you, and you've heard this before, I, I recall crossing the street once with my father, and he's holding my hand, and I'm just, I'm just a little kid, you know, like this. Home for college for the weekend. Now, I was probably like four or five years old. And he's holding my hand, and a big German shepherd dog comes running across the street towards us, and I tried to pull away. Ain't happening. He grabbed my hand tighter. I remember it hurt a bit. I couldn't get away. And... He gave that dog a kick. There was no way I was getting out of his hand. Romans 8 says, Nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Are you something or nothing? Even if you're nothing, nothing shall. Okay, nothing can separate you. 
the true believer, by the grace and power of God, will hold fast firm until the end. He will not deny Christ. He will not apostatize from the faith. He will not reject Christ and say, I'm not into that. I'm not into Christ anymore. Christ has been submitted to as Lord, not just added to his life or her life. Take care to heed the warning. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. Heed this warning. If you are hearing his voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit through the words of Scripture, don't harden your hearts. Take heed to that warning. The warning is necessary. It's repeated over and over again. It's repeated four times in this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, you know, we talk about truly, truly. Oh, something's repeated. We've talked about three times in some messages. We're so, the same truth is repeated three times. In this larger section of Scripture, between last week and this week and next week, four times. This warning is important. God wants every one of us to hear it. Do not harden your hearts. Take care not to provoke God. Hardening your heart is not a, uh, not a neutral thing. It's not a little thing. Well, it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Hardening one's heart against the Word of God, against the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, provokes God. How many here would mind greatly having me as their enemy? I mean, look at this. What am I going to do? How many here would like to have God as their enemy? Big difference, right? Provoking me? What's the worst I'm going to do? Preach a sermon about you? <laughs> Provoking God? What's the worst that can happen? It's eternity separated from God and Christ. Big difference. Take care not to provoke God with a hard heart. Let's look at the example. He actually gives an example, an example all of his readers were very familiar with. These were Jews. They knew the Old Testament better than you and I do. And he's going to use an Old Testament example, one that they knew about and were intimately familiar with. Those who were among the redeemed fell away. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? They were part of the people of God who came out of Egypt. They were Jews. They were all brought out of Egypt. And yet they would harden their heart they would disbelieve God 
and they would fall away, and their bodies would fall in the wilderness. Those who sinned fell away. With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He was angry over a hard heart. It did provoke God. They had it recorded in Scripture. Throughout the book of Numbers, you can read about this. You can read about their unbelief and sin in the book of Exodus as well. He was angry, and the result was they fell. They died. Whose bodies, you could translate that, they're dead bodies. Or they're corpses. Not a living body. Their dead bodies fell in the wilderness. It was with those who sinned against the Lord. A number of times it's recorded their sin. But there was one particular sin that's recorded that was the reason why they wandered in the wilderness. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Those who were disobedient fell away and failed to enter God's salvation rest. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. The promised land that they were going to after they left Egypt... And the Red Sea was parted, and they went through that. They entered the wilderness. It took them about two years to get to the promised land, and they sent out 12 spies. And the 12 spies scouted out the promised land, and they found enemies there, including some that were giant. And they came back and gave a report. Ten of the spies said, we can't enter the land. There's giants in the land. They'll defeat us. They'll kill us. Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord will give us the victory. They believed what the Lord had said. The others did not, and the entire nation of Israel, except Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, disbelieved the Lord. Throughout their wilderness wanderings, Whatever they complained about, God gave to them. We need water or we'll perish. There's water from a rock. Oh, we're so tired of this manna that God is providing. We want meat. The food was better in Egypt. We want meat. So he sends them quail up to their armpits, covered the camp. Everything they ask for, he gives them. After those ten spies brought back the the bad report, what did they say? Oh, if only we had died in the wilderness. There's the Lord. Strange request, but be it unto you as you have asked. And over the next 38 years, they die in the wilderness. He gave them exactly what they asked for. It was the sin of unbelief that caused them not to enter the land. God said, enter, I will give you victory. In fact, most of them will flee before you you won't even have to fight them. You'll, they'll give you their homes. They even have planted their crops. You can harvest them. Oh, we don't believe you, God. We can't enter the land. The promised land is analogous to God's salvation rest. It's not heaven. Why isn't it heaven? 
There's no warfare in heaven. Yet there was warfare when they entered the promised land. Some battles did occur. There's no battles in heaven. We don't engage in spiritual warfare in heaven. The promised land is not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of God's salvation rest. For the Jews who turned to Christ, they rested from trying to show themselves righteous by keeping the law and the animal sacrifices. Their unbelief was disobedient. They didn't actually enter the land. Why? Because they didn't believe God would keep his promise to them. Those who disbelieved fell away and did not enter God's salvation rest. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Their disobedience had its genesis, had its roots, had its source, had its beginning in their unbelief. They did not believe God would do what he had promised and give them that land. In this passage, we see that Christ was revealed as the one we need to take care to hold fast to in order to become a partaker of salvation. God wants you to know that you must take care to hold fast until the end to be a partaker of Jesus Christ. I hope we saw that clearly, especially from verse 14. Let me give you two, two challenges. Today, while it is still called today, will you begin to realize that it's possible to fall away from Christ? And if you're a true believer in Christ, that should scare you. You know that you won't because God is going to keep you. But the very thought of falling away from Christ should scare you. Might scare some more than others, but the thought should at least be, I would never want that to happen. Oh, Lord, hold me tight because you know how weak I am. Without you, I would fall away and show myself to never have been a true believer at all. And today, will you begin to hold fast and encourage one another every day? Look around the room. When you're out in the fellowship hall having pizza and looking at the ministry tables, would you uh, look around and try to find three or four people that you know pretty well? Some of them might be close friends. Others might be someone you've chatted with. Ask them for their phone numbers. Ask them if it would be okay for you to call them once or twice this week and encourage them and for them to encourage you. But encourage one another day after day while it is still called today so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Would you be willing to put that verse into practice in your life? Find three or four people and make it a point to call one of them a day. Could be a five-minute phone call. Some days you may end up being on the phone 20 minutes. You may pray together on the phone. But encourage one another. Would you take that challenge? It'll knit our hearts together in brotherly love. It'll show we're not just a community of neighbors 
Christian neighbors, we are a family of brothers and sisters. Take that challenge. It's not just a challenge for me. It's a challenge from the Holy Spirit. But encourage one another day after day. That's a command, encourage. It's not optional. It's not optional for me. It's not optional for you. God wants us all to do that. Would you do that, please? You'll be blessed if you do that. You'll have sweet fellowship around the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll show love to a brother or sister. You'll realize they love you. As you take the time from your busy schedule, you miss a day, it's not the end of the world. It's not depart from me, you accursed. No, just do it the next day. Call one person or if you can call two, the person you missed and another person. Would you do that? Do it for his glory and his name's sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the power in your word. And oh, Lord, how heavy this warning is. Oh, dear God, may the words of this morning never be true of any of us here. Oh, Lord, may the weight of this warning cause us to reevaluate our relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, dear God, give us eyes to see and a mind to understand whether we've just added Christ to our life or we've submitted to him. Be pleased to reveal this truth to us. May it be a weight that brings us to our knees if we have not, where we cry out and submit to your lordship. Dear Jesus, oh dear God, encourage us, we pray. Ease the pain in our heart regarding our loved ones who have turned their back on Christ. Oh dear God, dry our tears. Heal our broken heart. Convict our loved ones of their sin and the need for a Savior. Draw them back to you. And may they finally, instead of adding you to their life, submit to you and then hold them fast firm until the end as they grab onto you. Oh, dear God, may we never want to let your beloved son go. Dear God, strengthen us with a spirit of diligence to encourage one another day after day. Be pleased to do this for your glory and your namesake.